Welcome to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I'm Greg Hall, and I teach whenever I can. I write when I find time. And today, I'm excited to share with you something that might cause you to rethink what you thought you already knew about the Bible. For more about this podcast and other Rethinking projects, you can visit RethinkingScripture.com. So let's stop for a moment to revisit and rethink. Welcome to Episode 2, an introduction to the Gospel of John. And before we get into the Gospel of John, I just wanted to let you know that I'm also producing YouTube videos of the podcast for those of you that are maybe a little more visual in the way you like to process. I do highlight some of the work that I'm quoting on slides within the video, and I include Bible texts that I reference. So those are available on my Rethinking Scripture YouTube channel. There are links in the episode notes that I'll include. You can always find it on the Rethinking Scripture website. I'd also like to take just a moment to kind of do some recap of the first episode where we talked about what it is we're trying to accomplish on this podcast and how it is that rethinking can be painful and that we often bring our traditions into the reading of the text with us. And I want to highlight a book written by another rethinker. His name is Dr. Michael Heiser. He's catching a lot of attention in academic circles right now with his works about the unseen realm. In fact, that's the title of the book that I'm going to be talking about today, Unseen Realm. And I'm going to be quoting out of chapters one and two, where he introduces the purpose for his book. And it sounds very similar to what we covered in our first episode. So let's just uh, jump in by uh, interacting with some of Heiser's work here from the end of chapter one. He says, my goal is simple. When you open your Bible, I want you to be able to see it like ancient Israelites or first century Jews saw it to perceive and consider it as they would have. I want their supernatural worldview in your head. You might find that experience uncomfortable in places, but it would be dishonest of us to claim that the biblical writers read and understood the text the way we do as modern people, or intended meanings that conform to the theological systems created centuries after the text was written. Our context is not their context. And that was one of the main points of our first episode. Our context is not their context. They being the biblical authors and the original recipients of the text. We bring so much of our tradition and our worldview and our culture to the table that was never even part of the picture when the text was written. Heiser goes on to say, seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They process life in supernatural terms. That's the concept of his book that he's focusing on, the supernatural. Today's Christian processes it by a mixture of creedal statements and modern rationalism. He described his process of study and education using the help of two metaphors. And the two metaphors are a filter and a mosaic. Filters are used to eliminate things in order to achieve a desired result. He gives some examples like cooking. We use filters in cooking. We use filters in our cars. We use filters in email. (laughs) 
and they eliminate things in order to achieve a desired result, filters do. And he says, most of my education was conducted in this way, using filters. It was no sinister plot. It was just what it was. The content I learned was filtered through certain presumptions and traditions that ordered the material for me. I understand that a lot of well-meaning Bible students, pastors, and professors don't look at how they approach the Bible that way. I know I didn't, he says, but it's what happens. We view the Bible through the lens of what we know and what's familiar. Our traditions, however honorable, are not intrinsic to the Bible. They are systems we invent to organize the Bible, and they are artificial. They are filters. He goes on to say, once I've been awakened to this, it struck me as faithless to use a filter. But throwing away my filters cost me the systems which I ordered scripture and doctrine in my mind. I was left with lots of fragments. So the, the first metaphor that he uses on how he studies and the process that he's gone through in his life is just to recognize that when you approach the Bible, just by the nature of who we are, we are filtering constantly the text, the messages that we've received, the systems that organize the texts and the messages. And some of those are denominational distinctives. Some of those are theologically rooted and grounded. Maybe you took a class at some point and the professor stood up and said, this is how you are to understand the structure of this topic that the Bible presents. And what Heiser is saying in the process of learning, we need to get rid of those filters. And when we do that, what happens is we become uncomfortable. It feels like we've lost our footing. It feels like we're going to fall. And he describes it as, I was left with a lot of fragments. He says, I didn't feel it at the time, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened. The second metaphor that he uses, now that he's eliminated the filter, is a mosaic. And he says it this way, the facts of the Bible are just pieces, bits of scattered data. Our tendency is to impose order, and to do that, we apply a filter But we gain a perspective that is both broader and deeper if we allow ourselves to see the pieces in their own wider context. We need to see the mosaic created by the pieces. The Bible is really a theological and literary mosaic. The pattern in a mosaic often isn't clear when you're up close. It may appear to be just random assemblage of pieces, Only when you step back can you see the wondrous whole. Yes, the individual pieces are essential, but he goes on to say, without them, there would be no mosaic. But the meaning of all the pieces is found in the completed mosaic. And the mosaic isn't imposed on the pieces, it derives from them. So, Just this process that Heiser is talking about where he releases the filter that we bring to the table. And with the pieces that are left, what he tries to do is understand what those pieces are as best he can and then back away from them to see the broader whole. I'm excited about how Heiser has given us these metaphors, these ideas about how it is he goes through this process of eliminating filters and just being left with pieces. Because That's what we're going to be doing today. We're actually going to take you on a little journey and 
undo some filters possibly that you may have that you don't even know you have. And then we're going to back away from the book of John. We're going to keep backing up because we're trying to look at the mosaic, how the individual pieces come together for the overall meaning that the original author had, that the original readers would have understood, but that often we miss. Heiser concludes this way. My passion is to persuade you to remove your filter and begin to look at the pieces of scripture as part of a mosaic so that this big picture can begin to take focus. If you do it, you'll find, as I did, that this approach leads you to the answers to questions like, why is that in the Bible? And how can I make sense of all this? If you've spent serious time in scripture, you know that there are many odd passages, curious phrases, troubling paradoxes, echoes of one event in another, connections within and between the Testaments that can't be coincidental. So we're going to take that from episode one, kind of taking another step further with what Heiser has said, and then we're going to dive now into the book of John. And my goal is to take you on a bit of a journey. So won't you join me? like to interact today with a book by Dr. Warren Gage. He was one of my seminary professors, and he has written extensively on John's gospel and how that gospel relates to the book of Revelation. So in the idea of backing away from scripture, letting the pieces speak for themselves, and seeing the mosaic, this will be an excellent example of what we just talked about out of Heiser's book. So Gage's book is called John's Gospel, A Neglected Key to Revelation, and that ends with a question mark. So he's going to be connecting the two books, and we'll get into exactly maybe why he's doing that. Let's just start by jumping in. Dr. Gage says, uh, this book will attempt to identify John's great city, the Horish Babylon, in order to understand her relationship to the seer's vision of the beloved city, the virginal New Jerusalem. So he's talking about the book of Revelation. And in the book, there are two cities. One is called the Great City, and it's also described as Horish Babylon. But at the end of the book, there's a city called the Beloved City, and it's uh, the virginal New Jerusalem. Gage warns us that this study departs explicitly from the customary order of the historical critical method. So he's just giving a heads up early on that this is not going to be the, the normal type of study. Okay. But that's exactly what we want. We want somebody that's outside the box. We want somebody that's going to show us a mosaic that we haven't seen before and probably have never even considered. So consequently, he says, this study will be fundamentally literary rather than theologically critical in its approach to the biblical data at hand. So he's looking at the text as a piece of literature. And this is what he taught me. I had grown up studying the Bible a certain way, but it was Dr. Gage that encouraged me to see the Bible as a piece of literature and to be able to study it as a piece of literature like you would do any other book, because it had authors, and the authors used literary stylistic methods to get their points across. 
And it's those methods that he tries to bring together to bring the mosaic into focus. He says, we will proceed on the assumption of a common authorship of the fourth gospel and revelation. And that is an assumption out there in academia. A lot of people don't agree with that, but that's the assumption we're starting with. John wrote both of these books. And he says, this claim is supported by remarkable literary and thematic patterns. There are things within these books that would suggest similar authorship. And he says, they may be justly regarded as constituting an elaborate literary diptych. And you might not be familiar with that term. Diptych is spelled D-I-P-T-Y-C-H. At the time these gospels were written, there was a cultural way to present the teachings of a great teacher. They would produce two volumes. And the first volume would cover the content that was taught when the teacher was here on earth and maybe what happened to his followers during that time. And then a second volume was written as part of the diptych that told the story of what happened after the teacher died, what happened to his followers, and how the message and the teaching of the teacher got its way out into the world. And we don't have to go too far to see this, because that's exactly what Luke did. Luke wrote his Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the Book of Acts. Those two books are written in the same style. Gage is suggesting that the book of John and the book of Revelation are exactly that. They're two companion volumes, and because they're companion volumes and they share so many literary patterns, they should be studied at the same time together to get the full mosaic picture and message of what John was trying to communicate. And here is what Gage is wanting to point out, he says, the fourth gospel's theme of the redeemed fallen woman. So he's talking about the gospel of John and that that has a theme of fallen women that are redeemed. And it's expressed in the account of the Samaritan woman, John 4, the woman caught in adultery in John 8, and in the transformation of Mary Magdalene. Those examples suggest a remarkable possibility that the virginal New Jerusalem of Revelation actually has her origin in the city of the Horish Babylon. Gage says, we've got to follow a theme of fallen women that are redeemed by Christ. We'll see it in the gospel account, and we'll also see it in the book of Revelation. And when we see those two pictures together, that's when we see the mosaic that John was trying to communicate. And if we don't see those two together, It's incomplete. The examples he gave out of the book of John, again, the Samaritan woman, John 4, 1 through 45, the woman caught in adultery, John 8, 1 through 11, and then Mary Magdalene, who we see in John most prominently in John 20, verses 1 and 2, she's presented as the first person at the tomb on Resurrection Day. But we know from other Gospels as well, Luke 8, 1 through 3, and Mark 16, 9, that Mary Magdalene was an afflicted woman at one point. She was once possessed by demons, seven of them, and Jesus set her free. All of these stories are stories of fallen women that have been redeemed by Christ. And it's a theme in the Gospel of John, the way the author presented them. So that's one part of the mosaic. 
But we need to back away from that. And then we need to go into Revelation. And some of you may not be as familiar with Revelation. That's fine. I'll give you some places to look. You can begin to become more familiar with it. In Revelation, there's two cities. The first that we're going to talk about is Babylon, the Horish city. In Revelation 14.8, it says, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon the great is a city, but she's personified as a woman. And what type of woman is she? She is a woman who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. She's a fallen woman. Revelation 17, 1 through 7, has further description of Babylon, calls her a great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And lastly, if you jump to Revelation 18, 1 through 4, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. Now, we can't just skip over that. Let me let me say it again. She has become a dwelling place of demons. Is there a woman in John's gospel that had become a dwelling place of demons? Yeah, it's Mary Magdalene. John is using this city and he's connecting it back to his gospel. He's inviting us to see the mosaic that he's putting together with the pieces of this theme. And throughout the book, he calls this city Babylon. But there's one passage that gives us a little more insight as to what it is that John's talking about. And it's back in Revelation 11, 7 and 8. In this passage, just before these verses, there are two witnesses sent from God into the city. And verse 7 says, When they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. It's talking about Babylon here, but this is early on, and he hasn't given it the name Babylon yet. And he says the great city, which mystically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. And so what John is doing is he's painting a mosaic and he's bringing in now, as we back away from the tiles, he's brought in some new tiles. And he's bringing in names from the Old Testament of cities of ill repute. The first one, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah also had two witnesses sent into it. Do you remember? Two angels. And then there's Egypt, where the Hebrews were in slavery for generations. And by the way, there's two witnesses also sent into Egypt, Moses and Aaron. But that's not all. I'm going to read verse 8 in its entirety, Revelation 11.8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, where's that? That's Jerusalem. John's just brought Jerusalem into the mosaic. John is painting a picture of this great city, this woman, this whorish woman character in the book of Revelation. And he's connected it with four different cities that all have to do with exile and slavery. That's the whorish woman. That's the great city of Babylon in the book of Revelation. 
But that's not the only Jerusalem that's talked about. And here is Gage's point. As we get to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, there's a picture, it's a grand picture of a new heaven and a new earth. And in 21.2, it says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's new Jerusalem. And did you see how new Jerusalem, the city, is personified? Well, she's coming down out of heaven from God, and she's been made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's quite a different personification of a city. Babylon was a whorish city. No one would want to enter into the covenantal relationship of marriage with Babylon. But here we have a new character. It's the new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem, and she's been made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. She has been redeemed. The theme of fallen women in John's writing who have been redeemed by Christ starts in the gospel and it concludes in the book of Revelation. It's the examples in the gospel that set up the theme, but it's the picture of redemption in the book of Revelation that fills out the mosaic. It helps us to understand what redemption really is and to whom redemption is available. And it's available to anyone in the Horish city. How do I know that? Flip over to Revelation 18.4. That verse says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, the Horish city, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And this is the premise of Gage's work. That in John's gospel and in the book of Revelation, God is calling people out of fallen situations and offering them redemption. It's a beautiful picture. At RethinkingScripture.com, my website, I have a full study of John available. It's a study I taught back in 2018 and 19, and it's all set up for use either individually or with a small group. There are Bible lessons for each chapter. There's video of my teaching. I've got audio files there if you'd rather listen to it. I also have uh, some documents for each study that contain links to Rethinker excerpts and various sources. So lots of good material ready for your immediate consumption there at RethinkingScripture.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode, or you can go to the website and you'll find everything under the Bible Studies tab. Well, that's all for today. In the next episode, we get our feet wet by looking into the first chapter of John. There's a lot that needs to be revisited in the first chapter of John. Lots of rethinking that needs to take place. Hope to see you there. And thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast.